Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here. Welcome to another issue of Masters. And I just absolutely love and appreciate and have so much gratitude for the platform that I have, the opportunity that I have to bring to our listeners all sorts of wonderful speakers and and educators and storytellers. I love storytellers. I think all of us have a story to tell. And I think that when we can come together and if we're honest with each other at a cocktail party we're finding out that oh you're going through that too me too me too me too Mm -hmm. so we all have those stories to tell and uh, this beautiful woman that I'm sitting with right now absolutely has a story to tell her name is Audrey May Prosper so Audrey welcome to Masters. Thank you so much for having me it's such a privilege to sit with you and just chat and share our hearts together. Well, if you don't mind, I'm the type that likes to just jump into the story. And then from that story, I mean, that just hooks people in and that gets your attention right away. And then we can start extracting all of the wonderful uh, lessons and things that we go through. And absolutely, they teach us and they teach other people. And and, uh, so let's just jump into the story. Mm -hmm. So now I, I have this sitting in front of me, the story. Do you like me to read the story Do or do you want... To just jump into the story yourself. No, I absolutely can jump into the story myself okay. if you like to do it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but again, first of all, thank you for doing this. And, and I'll, I, I will jump ahead and let our listeners know that this story that you're going to share with us, you have been on the Dr. Phil show, Anderson Cooper, 48 Hours, I Survived, uh, lots of other different shows, The Doctor's. You have been featured in the New York Post, Daily News, the Washington Post, blog, talk, radio. And so lots of people are interested in this story that we're going to learn about right now. So again, Audrey, thank you so much. Thank you, Wynn. So yeah, I mean, really how this story unfolded and, and kind of began is uh, at 20 years old, I met a man who was very charming and just full of life, a lot older than me, but a lot younger than me at heart. And so when I met this man, I actually traveled to New York City to meet him in person for the first time. He was a New York City homicide detective. And so you'd think that's kind of a crazy thing to do, but I actually felt safe because he was a cop. So I went to New York City to meet him and we very quickly fell in love and just knew that the next step was for me to move there. So after moving to New York... Very, From where would you live? I lived in Texas. Okay. I'm a homegrown, cornbread-fed, raised in Texas my whole life. So with that, over the course of about seven years, he and I, we got engaged... Um, We had two sons. He retired from the New York City Police Department. And then we headed over to sunny Florida, bought a home, and eventually got married. And so our relationship really was not, um, I wouldn't say it was toxic in any kind of way. He really kind of worshipped the ground I walked on, honestly. He was very insecure and kind of always wondered how he got a woman like me, if you will, right? Right. And so 
there wasn't a situation where Chris was ever violent with me. He never called me names. He didn't do those sort of things. But there were other things that were happening, very much so. But you had had an experience like that in a relationship. You had had a previous relationship that was violent. Yes, And yes. so you went into this relationship saying this will never happen again. That's right. I disclosed right away that, you know, I had been in a very violent relationship at 18 years old. Still to this day, I don't know how I escaped death from that relationship, but I did, thank God. And so I never wanted to go through that again. I was one of those girls that always said that would never happen to me. I'm too smart for that, right? So he knew right out the gate that I would never accept that kind of behavior. But there was other things that I didn't kind of put my foot down on from the get-go. And uh, one of those things is Chris had a very, very bad gambling addiction. So many times in our marriage and in our relationship, he gambled so much money away that we almost lost the house. Not only that, but sorry if you're a Gemini. This guy's a Gemini. He really lived a double life. So much so that... I found out three weeks after I gave birth to our very first son that he was actually married at the time. And I had no idea that he was married. Now, he wasn't with this woman, but what he had communicated to me is that he had never been married in his entire life. So if you can imagine being a young woman who's being proposed to by this man and you think, wow, you're 17 years older than me and you've never asked anyone to marry you, I felt like I was the most special woman in the world. And when I realized that I wasn't, I felt instantly robbed. Like, I, I really believe that's the point where I fell out of love with him. But Chris, uh, you know, he he was a man who believed that he deserved more than just me. And so he had multiple affairs and he ultimately just lived a double life. It actually came out later that he wasn't even a homicide detective. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, I became fed up like any other woman would after years of going through these affairs and him gambling all this money away. And so I made the decision just 16 months after we were married, like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And to be honest, I was really thinking also – I'm pretty young still, and like I don't want to be 40 years old looking for the next husband in the world, right? Like I still want to be all intact and, you know, just still pretty hot when I'm looking for this next guy in the world. So I just tapped out. I was like, that's it. I want a divorce. Now, by this time, you had two, two sons. sons. Yes, okay. so Malachi and Malik. Malik was only 11 months old at this time. Malachi was four. So when you separated, he was 11 months old, He was 11, second son. Yeah, he was actually 10 months old when we separated. Okay. So with that... Of course, he was begging for me to come back, and I wasn't having it at all. And so there was one particular night where he actually, I was still living in the home with him, and we had this agreement that I was going to move out in a couple of months and get my own place with our sons. And he had come to pick me up from work one day because his car actually didn't have a battery at the time, so we were sharing my vehicle. And when he came to pick me up, I remember the drive home on the freeway, and he kept saying to me, you know, you're still my wife and you still have wifely duties to fulfill. And I just kept laughing at him. Like I was laughing in his face, whatever, bro. Like I'm not sleeping with you. I'm not having sex with you anymore. And so when we got to the house, I went into the master bedroom to go and change my clothes. And before I knew it, this man had me on the bed. He was trying to remove my pants and I remember looking to the right of me and seeing Malik in his crib. And at 15 years old, I had been raped. So I start having a flashback and I start screaming and he puts his hand over my mouth and tells me, shut the F up. You better not wake up our effing son. 
Now we were no longer together and he had never been violent in our relationship. I was absolutely floored and could not believe that he even had that in him to do something like that. By the grace of God, I was able to get out from under him and I ran to uh, what was my stepson's door. He had an older son. He was 16 at the time living with us. We had custody of him. And I knew if I could just get to that door in time and get Junior to pop open that door, that he would stop instantly. And so that's exactly what happened. He stopped immediately. I left that night with our two sons, called the police, and the police came out and did an investigation. Turns out they didn't arrest him. And to be honest, I think it's because he probably flashed his badge because he still had it in his wallet. Hmm. So I ended up uh, retracting my statement because I felt like, number one, I wanted to co-parent and I needed his support. But number two, if I would have followed through, he honestly would have lost his job at the TSA. He was now working for the TSA. And what that would have meant is that I wouldn't have had as much money to support our kids. So I retract my statement. And the irony is, Years later, I go back and I see this very lady and I remember sitting in her office and her saying to me, are you sure that this did not happen? And I'm like, yes. And you have to actually sign a document saying, okay, you're retracting your statement. So we just went on and I carried on. I went back to work and, you know, did what I was doing. I had my own apartment now with the boys and there had become like a a time where he and I started becoming cordial again. Cause I didn't talk to him after this attempted rape that night. And so the reality is I needed the birth certificates and I needed the social security card so that I could sign this lease. So I'd start communicating with him again. He ends up giving me a key to the home again. So now I have a key and I can come and go whenever I want. Right. And so after school, one day I decided to go to his house instead of going to my apartment because that house was closer, like on the way and, I mean, I lived in this house for five years. I was really comfortable in this home. And Chris actually had kept telling me that my new home was unsafe. And what I learned later on through education is that he was grooming me. Uh, He kept telling me, you know, it's it's really unsafe for you to be going to your house at nighttime with kids. Someone might hurt you. And so I honestly felt like it was more safe to be at his house than my own. So when I go there this particular day, I remember I was playing Justin Timberlake and T.I. in the car, uh, the song Dead and Gone. And the song talks about how the old me is dead and gone. And divorce is an interesting thing. Like you kind of, this part of you kind of dies and it's gone. What I didn't know is that I was walking into what he intended to be my death that day. And so when I entered the home the first time, I had set down my stuff, my backpack. I remember getting some water. It was still hot as hell in Florida at that time in November. And I was on the phone with a friend and then I left my phone. We lived in suburbia, you know, nothing happened there. So I left my phone. I left the keys to the house, like just left everything. And I had recently picked up jogging. So I go to put my hair up like any woman would when you're about to go for a run. And when I go into try to enter the master bedroom, he had installed a lock on that door. And so I remember just feeling like, okay, maybe he doesn't want me like in his personal space. This is not my home anymore. Totally get it. So I tie up my hair and I go for that run. And when I came back, I ran into my neighbor. And so she and I just have some small talk. She asked me about the kids. I asked her about her kids. She actually said to me that Chris had told her we were going through a divorce. I hadn't even had an opportunity to tell her that. And she asked me if I was okay. And I told her, yeah. 
And then I went to re-enter that home. And as soon as I crossed the threshold of that house, what was this bright November day very quickly turned into pure darkness. So this man was completely naked. He had shaved his body. He had a butcher knife in his hand. I remember him carving the Thanksgiving turkey with that knife. And he just charged at me as fast and as hard as he could. And when he scooped me up from behind, I had turned to try to open that door and leave. And I popped it open about two inches when he grabbed me. And that butcher knife that he had in his hand, it cut my pinky. So I remember looking down to the floor and in the foyer, my blood very like slow motion was dropping and hitting that tile. And I'm thinking, what the hell is happening right now? And our garage door and our front door sat right beside each other, the interior garage door. So he basically shimmies me with his feet behind me and forces me into that garage. We used to have wood floor or carpet, I'm sorry, in our living room. But we had installed wood flooring and the carpet from our living room was all in the house. So it was already carpeted in there. But what stood out to me was there was a blanket on the floor, like strategically placed there. So this is my second clue, like something is up. Remember, I didn't really think he was capable of anything. This guy was bred for 20 years to protect and serve, not to harm people. And so he places me on that blanket, has a butcher knife held to my throat, and begins trying to rape me. And I remember saying anything I could to pacify him enough to make him stop. So I start saying, Chris, I love you. I've been thinking about it. Let's get back together. If you stop, I'll pretend like this never happened. And it wasn't working what he was trying to accomplish that day. So he stands up and puts down that knife. And then he picks up a hammer and he walks over to me like I'm nobody, nothing, garbage, and just starts bludgeoning me over and over with this hammer in the head. Thank God I didn't lose consciousness. But the last blow drew blood on my left side. And so I could feel the warmth of the blood running down my face. I put my hand up and look like, oh my God, I'm bleeding now. And it really was a moment where I felt completely and totally helpless. Like, this is the moment I'm going to die. He is much bigger than you. There's no way you're getting out of that garage alive. And so I just resigned myself to death. And I started saying my final prayers. God, forgive me for my sins. Take care of my sons and let me go to heaven. And I remember looking back at the big garage door because we had never installed that automatic garage door opener. So I was checking to see if it was unlocked. It was my only ounce of hope. And then I had an image of Malachi and Malik in my brain. They were teenagers and they were orphans. And I could not, as a mother, fathom the thought of leaving them here alone. So I just changed my prayer. God, just let me live. Just let me live. That's all I want. Just let me live. And I had a vision of me in a wheelchair. But I was happy. I didn't care that I was in a wheelchair, i.e. scarred 80% of my body. I just was so grateful to be there to raise them. And so he then, 
sets this, uh, there was a cucumber melon candle that I bought at Target five years prior that I had put in our guest bathroom. And this candle was in the garage. And he picks up this candle and lights it. And he sets that on the washer. And the moment that he lights that candle, I know exactly what he's going to do to me next. So it's like when you're about to get in a car accident. The only thing you can do is brace for impact. And so all I could do was just brace myself for what was about to happen next. And I remember this moment where he was looking straight into my eyes and I could read his thoughts. And it, what, I, what I saw and what I heard him saying was, am I really about to go through with this? And then you can see his eyes just change in a moment, like click, yes. And then it goes again, click, and the lights go back off and no one's home. Pure rage in his eyes. So he drenches me in gasoline and then literally tosses that candle at me like he's tossing the remote on football Sunday, okay? Before the candle even hits me, I'm up in flames. And I spin up as fast as I can and I run for that garage door. And I'm able to open it with my hands just enough for me to duck down underneath it and get out. And then I'm running and I'm looking with my feet for the grass, not my eyes, because I'm engulfed in flames from my waist up. And as soon as I find that grass, stop, drop, and roll, we all were taught that thing in elementary school, but it's not working. Thank God, at the same time that I'm there trying to put those flames out, Veronica, my neighbor, is now walking back with her son from school, and she rushes over me, starts hitting me with her son's jacket, puts those flames out. There's another moment where I'm laying there on my back in the grass and this man pulls up and he pops out of this white truck like Captain Saber bro. Like this guy just shows up on the fire scene because Chris has now set fire to the home separately. So the house is in a blaze. I'm outside on the front lawn and he's like, is anybody else in there? And I remember saying to the guy, leave him in there, leave him in there. He did this to me, leave him in there. And he opens that garage at one point and we can all see Chris. And Chris walks to that garage and slams it back down on the guy. He ends up finding Chris in the backyard. But in the meantime, Veronica has to leave me to go call 911. And I am just so afraid that he's now going to come out of this home and he's going to finish what he started. So she ends up calling 911. The man pulls Chris out of the home from the backyard and we wait for the helicopter to arrive. When they arrived, I remember them holding me in the ambulance and I started feeling like I was slipping away. Like when death is literally like knocking on your door. The adrenaline's wearing off and they can't find anywhere to get a pick line on me. Like they can't get a needle in me. All my veins are collapsed. And I look at the guy and I'm like, we need to go. And we need to go now. Like, why are we still here? Oh, there's traffic. School just got out. I didn't know that what they were waiting for was that helicopter. But they bay flighted me out of there. And I spent the next six weeks in a coma, in the burn unit, in ICU. And then an additional six weeks in the hospital recovering before I was able to go home and see my sons again.
Well, I'm sure our listeners right now, they just want to take a breath. They just want to take this all in. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that you telling this story, sharing that with us today, is not an easy story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that you've told this story hundreds, if not thousands of times, and you basically have committed that you're going to continue telling this story mm-hmm. because there's a whole lot more to this. Yes. There's a whole other side to this. There is a complete and total other side. And people listening to this, um, your story is your story. Mm-hmm. And people listening to this thinking, well, that didn't happen to me. You know, my story isn't as extreme as hers, but that doesn't matter. Because our stories are our stories, and our stories are what got us here today. And sometimes it's our stories, whether they're extreme as yours is, or they're not as extreme, not as violent, but they're mm-hmm. still holding us back. They're still keeping us from moving forward. And, and that's what I love the most about where we're going to go with all of this is how do you move forward? You know, mm-hmm. how, do, how do you move beyond this? You know, coming out of that, I'm thinking that right when you're coming out of this, the, the first thought are your son's. Mm-hmm. Your your two boys, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so tell us more about about that in that situation. Where did they go during those, you know, six months. to twelve weeks? Yeah, months. Um, how, how do you how do you then reconnect with them? Because now mom doesn't look like mom anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was a very real uh, experience. Uh, they were able. They were at the babysitter that day. And that babysitter actually became their godmother later on, right? And she deserved it rightfully so. So they, thank God, were in the best place they could have been for the three months that I was gone. They were getting love. They were getting support. They were already getting therapy. And I, there was one particular day, like when you're in the hospital, it's almost like once you get down to the rehab level, for me anyway, it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card day like one day you get to get out of jail for free and so I chose that day obviously to go and see my sons and to be honest I didn't even know like that they could come to the hospital and see me but I remember thinking if they came to see me and then they had to go back home that it would re-traumatize them all over again because here I was with them and now they had to leave me again and so I decided against that but when I go to see them this one particular day I whenever you've been burned, like it's really hard for you to regulate your temperature from that point on. And because at third degree level, anyway, all of your pores have been burned. And so the other thing is that you also now become arch enemies with the sun. So the sun is not your friend because it physically hurts you to be in the sun. So when I walked into the home, uh, Michelle is her name. When I walked into Michelle's home, at this point, your boys are one year old and yeah, one and still four. One and four. Uh Uh-huh. So when I entered the home, Malachi ran to me immediately and hugged me, his little short self at that age, right? He hugged me around my legs and he was ecstatic to see me. Jeez, you're like the Oprah. I really am getting emotional here. (laughs) So with that, um, he, I remember us going over to- This was how long after- this is three months. Like three this months. is a couple of days before the three month mark. So now, what did you look like? Were you still I mean, bandaged at that no, point? No, I was did... literally like a monster. Literally, okay. actually, now that you say that, I remember Michelle coming to see me and me asking her to take a photograph of me and to take it home and show them. And this woman started arguing with me, and I was like, "Listen, lady, they're my kids. Take a photo and go show these kids what I look like because I'm going to shock the hell out of them when I walk through that door." Okay. 
So they had been prepped by one photo a couple of days before I got there. That's it. By this name. By Michelle. By Michelle, yes, who's yes, taking yes, care of them. Yes. Okay. So he runs to me, hugs me, and Malik, when I went to go, I couldn't necessarily get down on the floor because I didn't have enough strength to get like down without falling. So they had to pick Malik up and kind of put him in front of me because I didn't have the strength to hold him either. And he started crying. And what I realized is that he didn't remember who I was. Right. So Malachi and I, we moved over to the couch and we sat down and I remember getting like hot. So I took off my jacket, right? <laughs> and he, uh, I remember him rubbing my arm and saying to me, it doesn't matter that you've been burned. I still love you. And I was like, wow, kids are so profound, right? <laughs> like they're so small, but they're so profound. You probably could have had a million people tell you that. Yeah. Doesn't matter, mm -hmm. Audrey. Doesn't matter. Not the same impact as having your four-year-old son, Malachi, say, Mommy. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. And it was just a beautiful moment. I couldn't hug him because, like, touching me was painful. So mm -hmm. I couldn't hug him or anything, but I could just kind of be there with him and touch, you know, a little bit. But I just, you know, the one of the toughest parts of this whole journey was the kids. I just felt like they were robbed. Growing up, my dad, he and my mom divorced when I was really young and he just, I don't know if he thought he was a kangaroo in his past life or something, but he just like hopped in and out whenever he felt like it. And so when I became older and made the decision to have kids, I was so intentional about choosing whoever that person was going to be. And Chris, he had two older kids, a daughter and a son. And so I got to watch him be a dad to these kids. And he was a phenomenal father. And so my heart just broke that now this cycle of growing up without a father had been passed down to them. And when I cried early on, when I just felt broken, a lot of it had to do with them. Hmm. It really did. Give our listeners just a, an overview of, of physically what you've had to go through. So how many surgeries, what did those surgeries look like, the physical therapy? Yeah. You gave us a little bit of in, information that you can't regulate temperature. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just give us that picture, snapshot. So 80% uh, burned and mainly third degree burns. Which means what? Tell us what, the, what does what that, that mean? What that means is that, I don't want to get nerdy on you, but like you've been burned all the way to the deepest layer of your skin. The only next layer is your bones. Okay. And so that skin cannot repair itself. And okay. skin is actually the largest organ we have and the only organ we can't donate unless you're identical twin. Mm -hmm. So I had been grafted all over, but the other part is that, you know, once you've been- Can you be grafted with your own skin? Yes, they actually. And can, somebody else's skin? Can you? No, you can't. You can't take. I can't take your skin, Win. No, and you can't take mine. But what you can do is they can take your skin if you've been burned. 
so badly and you don't have a lot to donate to yourself, they can take your skin and they can actually send it to a lab and grow it over the course of 30 days. It is amazing what they can do. But I had been grafted all over my body and physical therapy really was the greatest challenge. Like, because when you've been burned, after you've been on fire for long enough, you're burning all of your nerves. So you're not feeling that pain anymore. But when you wake up out of a coma and now you have to do the physical therapy, that's the part that is the hard part because it is brutal. I think I shared with you before, right? When we were talking that when you've been burned, your body wants to naturally go back into the fetal position. Your skin is contracting in essence. Okay. And that's what forms actually a lot of your scars. You can form scar bands across your arms that now you're no longer to lift your arms anymore unless those bands are cut and released and all types of things. So when you've been burned, your physical therapist's job is to come in every single day and stretch that skin so that you don't contract and go back into the fetal position because you lose more mobility. The more you contract, the more mobility you lose. And so going through physical therapy, oh my God, it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. And I did that in the hospital. And then I did that out of the hospital for a full year, three times a week. And then there's all the surgeries. So in the hospital, I had seven trauma surgeries to do all the grafting. But since I've left the hospital, I've had 10 more surgeries or more along the lines of reconstruction and then nine different procedures. So So what did you have to reconstruct? Well, I mean, for example, I lost half of my left ear. So I had some wonderful doctors along the way that just said, we want to help. Face Forward LA was one organization that helped me. They ended up doing the first two surgeries that I had to give me a neck because if you can visualize, the scars were so bad around my neck that my chin was fused to my chest. So it was like a long ski slope from my chin to my chest. And almost uh, as if your so your skin had basically melted. Yes. And melted. And then when it heals and they do those surgeries, the skin tissues naturally form contractures and that tightens up that skin. And now I didn't have a normal neckline that other people had. And I literally, I physically could not hold my head up high the way that you can. Like I was forced to hold my head down. And when you think about that metaphorically, it's like, oh my God, like all I want to do is hold my head up high. So I met some other people along the way. Um, Dr. David Alessi, who, um, he performed all the rest of the surgeries on me. Just, I can't even count like how much that man has done for me. But those were brutal. He's the one that rebuilt my ear. He also helped my neckline more, uh, gave me more range of motion in my arms. And what does that look like? Well, for example, when you go swimming and you're trying to you know, stretch your arms out and then push them behind you to push yourself forward, I couldn't only get my arms into about the shape of a V. So I couldn't push my arms back and swim, but he opened those scar bands up around my armpits so that I could do that. And beyond the physical side, I mean, there was everything else. I lost my job, my car. I couldn't go back to school. The boys and I were on welfare. My medical bills were through the roof, even though I had medical insurance because all my doctors were out of network. And... My credit had been destroyed. They repossessed my car from the driveway, Honda Financial. (laughs) 
So this happens to you, but they repossess your car. They repossessed my car while I was in a coma. And I had to pay that car off, Wynn, okay? But everything that you can imagine, I lost everything that day except for what really mattered, which was my life and my son's lives. Okay, so moving forward, you share with us the physical side of this. And I'm sure we can't even get our heads wrapped around what you physically, through all the surgeries, had to go through. But now let's just talk about the damage to your heart, to your soul, to your psyche, to... And at the same time, you're still a mom. Yeah, yeah. You're you're, you're a mom, and who knows what these boys are going through. Absolutely. And mothering, the mother in me, is what pushed me forward more than anything else. But, Mm. you know... When you have been violated at the level in which he violated me, you sort of lose your faith in humanity. You begin to believe that people are just bad, even the ones that we're supposed to trust. There are people who watch the news every single night, so nothing has happened to them, but they watch it happening to other people, and they've lost faith in In humanity. humanity. Yeah. And so numero uno was I needed to focus on the internal. I was just shattered that this man who was my husband, the father of my children, and for a time my best friend, that he had done what he did. I mean, he literally could have gone and found another 20-something-year-old girl the next week, Mm -hmm. and it would have just been that, right? Right. But he made the decision that he made. So I just felt utterly betrayed. And when I looked at myself in the mirror for the first time, I was just devastated. So like that's a physical effect of what happened. But at the same time, it broke me on the inside. To have to face myself and to face for the first time when I looked at myself what he actually did. Now, prior to this, you had won beauty pageants. Yeah, as a kid. kid, Don't get too excited here. It was as baby (laughs) beauty pageants. (laughs) Well, as as I was promoting the fact that you were going to be speaking at my event, and, Mm -hmm. of course, there's your photo. People are like, oh, she's so pretty. Mm -hmm. And then I tell the story, well, this is the woman who was doused by gasoline and lit on fire. Then people look closer at the photo they're like like they're trying to see something that they didn't see before Mm -hmm. otherwise they're like oh she's so pretty Mm -hmm. but when you had to look in the mirror that first time what did you see freddy krueger is what i saw and what i felt was that i had been robbed like someone had come in in the middle of the night and robbed me of the way that god designed me to look and to be honest before this happened there i was vain for sure I was never conceited, but I was vain. Like, I cared about the way that I looked. I always did my hair. I always did my makeup. And, you know, I was a hot little 20-something-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so you're faced with so many things. Like, will anyone ever love me again? Right? Will I embarrass my children at school? Is that going to be a cause for them to become bullied or to become the bully? Right? right? So... The beautiful thing that happened is that I realized early on 
that I had the right to choose how I was going to respond to what happened to me. And the other beautiful thing is that my community opened their arms in a time in which I thought I was going to exit from that hospital and I was going to just hide in shame and in guilt. My entire community, this was in the Tampa Bay, Florida community, they opened their arms as wide as they could and they just loved me and they supported me. And that had a profound effect on my healing journey. I came out of the hospital and found out that they had raised over $30,000 for us. I immediately was asked to share my story. So in essence, they're the ones that inspired me to break my silence. And they just rallied around me. They did everything they possibly could to help the boys and I. They donated a brand new house of furniture. They just gave and gave and gave, not only of their money, but of their time, of their hearts, of their friendship. That was going to be my question of what did the support look like? Obviously, so you're saying it's financial and they bought you furniture and things like that. Because mm -hmm. sometimes people are thinking, oh my gosh, that's such a terrible situation. What happened to that person mm -hmm. uh, is so terrible. Uh, somebody should do something. Somebody should do something to help that person. And oftentimes they don't realize that, well, I am that person. That's you are right. that person. But they don't think that they have the power, that they have any resources mm -hmm. to be able to give. So what would it the giving and the support that people provided because people think it didn't matter, but to you it did matter. What did that look like? So the people listening to this thinking, I can't do much, and you're going to tell them, no, you can do, and this is a, exactly what it looks like. This Absolutely. is what made a difference it, to me. What it did was it helped me restore my faith in humanity. Oh. It, it reminded me that people are good mm. and that this thing happened, but people are good. And they will love you and they will help you. And so that looked so different throughout my journey, whether it was the surgeon that said, hey, I actually know how to cut people open and put you back together. I want to donate my time and my service to Jeez. you. The car that I drive today that got me through college, they literally donated it to me right off the lot, brand new. It was like an Oprah Winfrey moment. You get a car, you get a car, you, everybody gets a car. And that, when that was the second car. They had given me another car, but the transmission blew. So not one, but two cars. Whoa. That doesn't happen. You Whoa. understand? And I think about it, and I'm like, my gosh, what would it be like if every person, first of all, nobody wants to have to go through domestic violence. But what would it look like if every person who did have to face it had the same level of support that I had? Right. What would their healing look like? So we all have a role to play. People think that domestic violence is not their problem. People think that they can't help. But the reality is that it's so easy to think it's not your problem until it's, God forbid, someone you love, your daughter, your sister, someone being harmed. Or on the other side of that, your son, your uncle, your cousin going to prison for life. So we all have a role to play and we all can give something. We're going to talk about domestic violence and the facts surrounded around that. And believe it or not, uh, we're going to get into uh, topics like forgiveness. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there are people that are like, I'm going, to, I'm going to hunt this guy down. Where is he right now? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've gotten lots of messages about what should right. happen to him. Right. So forgiveness is a big, big topic as well that we need to 
jump into. So let's talk about domestic violence. What are the statistics? Because people do want to think, well, that doesn't touch me or it hasn't touched me. And so I don't need to be aware right now. So the harsh reality is that, you know, if you have six women in your tribe, right, your little inner circle, Mm -hmm. whether you're male or female, two out of those six women will be affected by domestic violence in their lifetime. And we think, okay, that's a number, it's statistics, like wah, 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 who cares, right? But again, what if it was in your tribe? What if it was someone that you loved that that was happening to? How is it that two out of every six women will have to face being abused when they should just be loved, right? The other thing is that the most dangerous time for someone when they leave an abusive relationship is actually the first six months of them leaving. That's when they're, well, because that's when the person that they've been with starts to feel like they've lost all control and they start freaking out, trying to regain that control. So that's when you're at most risk for potential homicide. And that's really the truth of my story. Hmm. That's something separate called separation violence, but still under domestic violence. Then if you're a woman between the ages of 18 to 24, which is all of our kids in college, Mm -hmm. that's when you're most likely to be affected is those ages. And what I find profound is that for the longest time, we've been teaching kids about sex, right? Like how do we safely have sex and what are STDs and where do you go for issues if you've gotten pregnant when you're a teenager and da, 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 da. But what we're not teaching them is how to have healthy relationships. So it's like we're skipping this entire step. So women and men both alike across this country and across the world are being affected by domestic violence. And there was a moment where I was in my apartment, the very first apartment that I had after this all happened with the boys. And I was reading an article about a woman in the Middle East who had been burned. There's something that happens over there called bride burnings. And if the dowry is not paid, for that bride. They will burn that bride. They will tie her up and they will burn her. And I remember thinking when I read this, deathly afraid. I was deathly afraid because I realized in that moment that I am the smallest fraction, the smallest piece of the puzzle in what's happening across the entire world. It wasn't but two years later that only one county away, another woman was set on fire by her husband. And I I read about that, and you actually were part of the healing process for her, correct? You actually connected with this woman? I was able to connect with Megan and her family pretty much right when she was put into ICU. She was in the same ICU with me, same doctors, same Mm -hmm. nurses. Uh, but Megan did not get the opportunity to heal because Megan died wow. three months after being in that hospital. So the message is wake up, everybody. Yeah, Just... wake up and be intentional, especially with your kids. What does intentional mean? What does that look like? What does that mean? I have a daughter. She's seven years old. Tell me as a dad, how do I become intentional, as you say? The first thing you can do is model a healthy relationship with your daughter. That's the very first thing you can do. You can tell her every day how much you love her. Mm -hmm. 
you can instill in her healthy communication skills. Like, I don't want to sound technical, but people don't even know how to communicate in this world. And the lack of communication leads to arguments and conflict, and that leads to violence, right? If there's anything that she's ever been harmed by or hurt by in her lifetime, don't ignore it. Address it right away. Right. Because it is when we operate from the places of our wounds, it can't be healthy, right? We're broken, and now we're in grown adult bodies still trying to function. Absolutely. Can you talk about the guilt? Could you just, one of the things that you said that we need to do is to operate healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. But somebody listening to this thinking, well, that's that's me, but it's only Mm one-sided. And and I'm the victim side of this unhealthy relationship and, and the guilt that goes along with with this, like, do you do you have any guilt or regret that you retracted the first story when you retracted the first time that he came at you? Do you regret that you didn't move forward with that? I don't think I've ever regretted not moving forward with that because what I understand is that there is a level of fear mm-hmm. that comes along with being attacked by someone or violated. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what that person could do if we follow through. So I don't regret not following through. Now I would tell someone else to absolutely follow through, Mm -hmm. but I don't regret it because then I think I would be blaming myself for this happening and I can't possibly blame myself. How much blame and guilt did go into all of this? I mean, in the beginning, of course, I felt that Mm -hmm. I was to blame because I went to his house. That day, I felt that I was to blame because I went to his house and not mine. Like, you should have been smarter than that, Audrey. Why did you go there? You, you know, kind of set yourself up for this. But I was able to release that. Um, There were other pieces of blame, like how could you pick such a shitty father, if I'm allowed to say that here? No, you're not, but I'll I'll let it go this time. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, geez, like. Bless my mom's soul. She thought she picked a good one too, but she didn't. And here I was repeating this process and Mm -hmm. I just felt like a terrible person. I should have been smarter. I should have been wiser. I should have seen something, you know. And how much do people want to blame you? Like to this day, I'm sure there are people who are still still blaming uh, you. Well, it is your fault because of mm, blah, blah, blah. And the phrase is more along the lines of what did you do to piss him off? Oh, geez. Or... um, (laughs) You know, my ex-husband is an African-American man, so I've had lots of nasty hate mail about how I deserved it because I should have known better than to be with a black man in the first place. Right. So. Well, I have a feeling that a lot of that is uh, on social media, correct? Yeah. It's, It's incredible what people will do on social media. They hide behind a screen. The screen, and they, they're just the worst of the worst of the worst can come out of what should be kind, compassionate people. But mm-hmm. they get behind that screen, and they turn into something else, and, yeah. and they don't really understand the hurt that they can do. But then there's the flip side of that. Mm-hmm. So, and let's move to the flip side of this, forgiveness. How do you work through that? Because well, to not forgive your ex-husband would have turned into what for you? Where would you be today had you not gone through that process? And I'm sure you still go through the process of forgiveness. Yeah, uh, it would have turned into me being a miserable 
bleep. Like, I mean, I would have been really miserable. I would have been angry. My children would not be thriving today. How, how old are your sons? They're today? now 13 and 10 years old. Right. I got to meet them and spend uh, half a day with them. And, yes. And, uh, they loved you. Oh my God, they were adorable. <laughs> you know, I mean, we were carrying on these ongoing conversations about lots and lots of different topics. And, yeah. I mean, they were upright and confident and mm-hmm. and engaging and and mm-hmm. give me a big hug you know so they all of that was there too so mm-hmm. it's been quite the journey I'm sure it's been quite the journey so yeah forgiveness for me uh I started going to counseling right away I knew that I needed to focus on the internal before I ever focus on the external because children our children and what they do is mimic. So I knew that if I could start getting myself healthy and exemplify resilience, then they would only mimic the same. And even if they were faking it until they really made it, I didn't care. I just wanted them to see that resiliency. So in my counseling sessions, I really just started by expressing what I felt. So I've kind of learned along the way, these six steps uh, to the process of forgiveness. A lot of times we talk about forgiveness, like it's an event. But it's not really an event. It's a process. And so what that looks like. It's a skill. It's something that you learn and and you Mm -hmm. practice the same as learning how to play the piano or Mm -hmm. learning anything, right? It's. I never really thought of it that way. I never thought of it as a skill set. But thank you for that's the gift. Right now, Twitter, you're the teacher here today. No, but that's a gift. It's a skill set, right? So, yeah, I guess it is a skill set. And you do practice it over and over. But the first step with that look for me, like I have these six E's, right, if you will. And so the first E in step one is to explore. And in this step, what you're going to do is you're essentially going to identify and you're going to experience those feelings. So you're going to be asking yourself questions like what happened, uh, who did it, and how it made you feel. And once you've been able to answer those questions, what that looked like for me was obviously me sitting down and kind of diving into my soul, you know, and really exploring like, what is this that I feel inside of me? Yes, I feel angry, but there's other things I feel hurt, I feel betrayed, you know, and so on and so forth. So once you've been able to identify what you're actually feeling and explore that, then you're going to go to the second year. Wait, on the explorers, so what was the best way for you to do that? Was that journaling? Was that so? Yeah, I used a lot of different methodologies. Uh-huh. Um, I definitely journaled. I definitely communicated with others how I was feeling, and writing was a really big deal for me. I couldn't sing anymore because I had lost my voice through the tracheostomy being in there for so long, and that normally would be my therapy. But nonetheless, uh, I just wrote and I spoke. You said something today when you were speaking. I heard you say something about the vibration of writing. Can you share that? Yeah. So sound actually occurs like when you have thoughts inside of your brain, you're creating sound and sound is vibration. And so when you're actually taking those thoughts and you're writing those thoughts out, which comes in step two, then you are creating a vibration. And that vibration can be healing. So we have to get that vibration out of us and kind of change it and exchange it and turn it into a new vibration, a healthy vibration, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a lot. The second step is to engage. And it's in this step that you're going to actually take what's inside of you and you're going to get that out. So you've been exploring maybe on your own. It could be with someone else, but you have to be really intentional here that you're going to share this with someone that you can trust. 
So that's a support group. That's a therapist. Yeah, that's, could be a life coach, a therapist, right. could be your best friend, your right. mama, your puppy, whoever, right? right? And then you're also going to write that down because of what I was just sharing with you, that vibrational effect and basically right. just purging what's inside of you and getting that out. And so for me, I wrote it all out and I was just furious. Like, I feel like there was probably flames shooting out of my eyes when I was writing all of this out because I was just pissed that I'd been betrayed at that level. Like, even just the level of thinking about, like, you were supposed to be here to raise your sons. They weren't supposed to grow up without a dad. And here they are growing up without a father. And by the way, you know, ex-husband, you grew up without a father. How dare you do that to your right. children, right? right? So I got all of that out of me because otherwise I'd still be pissed off about it today. Mm -hmm. So in step three, what you're going to do is you're going to eliminate all that you've gotten out. What that looks like is you're going to take what you've written and you're either going to burn it safely somewhere where there's water nearby or someone who knows how to deal with a campfire, right? Or you're just going to throw it away. So in my case, I threw it away. And then the second time, I actually threw it in a fire with a lot of other women at a retreat. And it was very therapeutic to do that. Oh. Step four is you're going to activate empathy, right? You're going to, to empathize. And when you think about it, it's like, how could I ever have empathy for someone? Like, it's well, like give, give us the definition of empathy. Um, to feel, I feel, I hear, I see you, right? It's really understanding. Not trying to fix anything, but just understanding. Like, I'm not trying to fix you. If I'm empathizing with what you've been through, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, but I'm not here to fix you. I just feel you, right? And so I had to really think about in that step. This is where you're separating the offense from the offender. So it's kind of like you're dissecting this whole thing, right? And that's kind of the way my brain works. So I started separating things out like, okay, this is the father. This is the husband. This is the best friend. And I started looking at his life. And what I found when I looked back at his life was he was a grown man, but he was really on the inside a hurting abandoned little boy Chris like all of us have a story and Chris's story is that when he was born in Manhattan he was immediately placed into foster care and so when he was placed into foster care he ended up going from home to home to home until he was eight he was finally adopted at eight into a large family and just four years later his adoptive father dies so when you take a step back and you look at that, what you can see is that he suffered repeated abandonment. And what I know is that when we're wounded and when we have trauma that's been unresolved, we often will respond from those places of unresolved trauma. So in this step, you're really looking at this entire picture. Now, this doesn't mean that you ever go back to the person or you continue a relationship with them or anything like that. But it's trying to understand how the hell could he do something like this? What would drive this? Because I think in the world of domestic violence, if we're not looking for the root, we should all just pack up and go home. Mm. We should just stop doing what we're doing because we're not going to solve anything. I work with a woman who, uh, on the topic of bullying, mostly she her expertise is in younger kid bullying. 
And it's happened because she's so prominent in her field that when there's a bullying situation, she's the one that CNN calls and says, you know, okay. what, are, what are your comments okay. on that? And she gets a lot of hate mail and even death threats because she works more with the bullier. Yes. Meaning. Yes. She, yes. And, she, and, and people are thinking, we don't care about them. Mm-hmm. We don't care about those young mm-hmm. kids who are bullying kids. We only care about the kid who's being victimized. And, yeah. And, and that's her whole thing. If we're not going to the root of this. What are we doing? Yeah. We're all wasting our time. We're right. wasting our donation dollars, all of it, right? right? So it's, you know, God had given me a unique perspective before this all happened. And that perspective came from, and we'll rest on empathy here for a minute. When I was 16 and my brother was 19, he, like me, had the void of not having his father in his life. And so he sought out acceptance, you know, to belong. He joined a gang at 15. By the time he reached 19, his crimes just kept progressing, progressively getting worse. And at 19 years old, this man commits double homicide. Your brother. My brother. My brother that I grew up with my whole life. Ironically, fire was involved in that crime, too. And as a teenager, I watched this whole trial situation. I watched someone that I love be placed on trial for murder. And while this is all happening, I'm shattered. Like, this is, he was like a father to me, not just my big brother. And here he was going away, and the rest of the world was treating my mom, by the way, like she was the one who killed these two innocent people. And so this perspective that I had beforehand, I believe, just got dropped right into this new situation. As my husband says, everything is transferable, right? So I had this compassion already for people who committed violent crimes, from a place of hurt and desperation. Hmm. So if I was able to empathize with my brother, I'm alive today, but those two people and that crime, they're gone. And if I can empathize with that situation, I can empathize in this situation. Hmm. God loves Charles Manson the same way he loves you and I. That's my perspective. So after being able to empathize, the next step we're going to go to is step five, which is execute. And this is just a step where you're literally going to choose to forgive, and then you're going to put it into action. You're actually going to do it. This is the event, if you will. And so what that looked like for me was just letting go. And when we let go there's a byproduct of letting go. Like so many people talk about forgiveness and they come from this place of like, I'm going to forgive so that I, right? Whatever the I is. But what I found about forgiveness is that our motivation can come from a place of selflessness rather than selfishness. Because if I say to you, I'm going to forgive so that I can feel better, can feel free, can feel peace or whatever that is, I would love to live in a world where we can get to the place where we recognize that we have all wronged someone in our lifetime and that it's not truly wrongs are not truly measured. They're just wrong. A wrong is a wrong, right? And so 
It's really about just deciding that you're going to actually give this person who is the last person who possibly deserves forgiveness, <laughs> that you're going to give it like a gift that's beautifully wrapped with a bow on top. Here, this is for you. I forgive you. What did that look like for you? Did you send Chris, your ex-husband, a letter? Did you? Mm -mm. No, I didn't send a letter. I just vocalized to my dear counselor, Danielle, <laughs> and to myself that I forgive. And I said it out loud in front of a microphone and on the news and in articles. And I just kept repeating it, that I forgive him for what he did. Mm. And it had a profound effect. Mm. That byproduct is that peace that passes all understanding. Mm. That byproduct is breaking the prisoner free. See, I've always been okay with the idea of forgiveness because, like you say, for selfish reasons. Mm. I forgive because I need to feel better about myself. I forgive you because I need to be set free. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, mm, that's not enough. Well, the word give is in forgive. It's, it's a two-word, forgive. Mm. So I'm going to give something to you. Mm. That's what I'm going to do. So step six is to echo. Many people think that forgiveness is kind of this one and done thing. And for some situations it is, uh, but other situations it's not. There's things that happen that, you know, anger us all over again. And in my case, it was when we were going through the trial. Okay. And so when we were going through this trial, Chris made a determination that he was pretty smart and he could outsmart really smart people and fire patterns and all kinds of things like that. And so he made the decision to take the stand. And what he said when he got on that stand was that I had tried to murder him and that it was I who accidentally set myself on fire that day and that he tried to save me mm. and put those flames out. Mm. So naturally I was pissed off. All, all over again, again. like, uh, now I got to do this all over again. Right. But I did. I just went back to step one and walked through those mm. steps. And now we're at about number five. You know, the most recent thing is my current husband now has taken the boys into the prison to see Chris for the very first time in almost 10 years. Really, Malik, it kind of was his first time seeing his dad. Mm. And someone could say, how the hell could you let that happen? Right. But what's interesting is that when we've experienced that void of not having our fathers, it becomes recognizable in other people. Mm. And I recognize that void in my own sons. And I never I was so intentional about never speaking poorly about him, because what that does is it, it has a tendency to attack their identity because he is a part of them. They came from him. And so I was very intentional about not painting him as this villain. And after my new husband, current husband, took my sons in to see their father, they, by the way, are the ones that wanted to see him. Okay. Little Malik kept begging. We were getting ready to move to Colorado, and he kept saying, I want to see my dad before we leave the state of Florida. I want to see my dad. I asked him, hey, what's on your bucket list? I want to see my dad. So we honored that. Had there been communication? Yes. Okay. Uh, we had opened the doors of communication five years prior. Okay. And I honestly, at the time, never thought I would get to the place where I'd let them go in. Hmm. But after taking them in, there were some side effects. 
Malik, honestly, I think was triggered in some ways. He was so excited to see his dad, but at the same time, it was his past staring him in his face. And he had to walk out of that prison and not see his dad every single day, right? Mm -hmm. So when he was experiencing these triggers and he was afraid all of a sudden, he didn't want to be separated. He was going through separation anxiety and just regressing. That's what children do when they have been triggered by trauma. He was regressing. And because I've studied this, I was able to recognize it. And I remember being in the shower one day and David, my husband now, being in the bathroom with me and me, bless his ears, because I was screaming and cursing all over again, just enraged with how could you have abandoned them? He's going through what he's going through right now because of you and what you did. So... Sometimes we have to repeat the process. <laughs> and that was number Empathize, five. execute. Yeah. Yeah. Do it all over again. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of us are stopping at step number three to get past yeah. past that and actually start empathizing. Mm-hmm. It changes that. the whole game. Right. Honey, you're 20 steps ahead of me <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> Let's talk about identity. Because people so identify with the outer of how they look. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. On another scale, you know, we work with an organization called Look Good, Feel Better. When women mm-hmm. are going through chemotherapy and they lose their hair and they lose their eyebrows and um, they're unrecognizable, mm-hmm. not only to themselves but to their family as well. So now their family is treating them differently, responding differently to them because. You know, this person doesn't look the same. And so just the trauma that they go through and, and so look good, feel better, provides wigs and support wow. and, and makeup lessons and all of that. I love that. Um, so just on that scale, I've had a little bit of exposure and knowledge and, and awareness to, you know, what does that mean to all of a sudden your appearance has changed? Mm, so, I mean, I remember growing up with my mom, bless her heart, who really loved being a career woman and just wanted to be successful. I remember her talking about wanting to join the FBI at one point, like this crazy idea. But my mom, she began to create her identity in her career. She was so great at it. And what she did for a living became who she was. And so when we do this, identity is actually Um, made up of three different components, right? If you looked it up in the dictionary, the components are your name, your character, and your beliefs. And so there obviously was an identity issue in me. And what I have found is that many people that are involved in unhealthy relationships, they all kind of have this identity issue. My ex-husband definitely had an identity issue. My brother had an identity issue. You can just name them. Right. And so when we're talking about roots, I think identity really is that root. And so uh, one of the fun little exercises that I've done is I actually went and I looked up my name to see what it means. And your name, actually, I looked it up, too. And you looked up. I looked up when I looked up. when. And I I never done that. What does it mean? When means friend, friend. And the irony or the beauty is that. I have never heard any or so many people talk about how much of a friend you are, like how you go above and beyond for your friends and the people in your tribe that you love. 
And so I thought that was really fitting mm. that your name means friend. Oh, thanks for that. You're mm. welcome. I looked up Sophia too, but I can't remember what it means right now. So mm. you'll have to look that up for her. But so Audrey, when I looked at my name, my name before my married name was Audrey Marie Mabry. And Audrey means warrior. Marie means rebel. And Mabry means thorough. So a thorough rebel warrior, if you will, is okay. a part of who I am. Right. You can see that through my whole lifeline, that that's ah. who I am, right? And there was this time in college when I was in my first semester, our teacher had given us this assignment to do a speech titled, Who Am I? And so I, wanting to be this philosophical, different than anyone kind of girl, go back and I start doing my research, like, how am I going to be different than everyone else in the room? And what happened and what came from that is that I realized that people were going to show up and they were going to have photographs of their family and they were going to say, hey, I'm a student and I work at this place and I'm married to this person and I'm the mother of these kids. And all of those are just titles, status and circumstance, right? None of that actually defines who we are. So what I found in this brainstorming session of my freshman year is that I am my character, and what does that look like for me, right? And we can all do this. We can all sit down and ask ourselves, who am I based on my character? So for me, I'm brave. I'm feisty as heck, right? <laughs> I'm courageous. I'm loving. I'm kind when you're so kind. Everyone who knows you will tell you when is kind. And so that going into the fire, I had just learned who I was based on my character. And it had everything to do with my healing journey, because right. I knew that what happened to me did not define me. It was just so, what happened to me. Okay, this is really profound. So name, character and belief. Mm -hmm. And none of that could be wiped away with a no fire. matter what happened. That's right. Reduced to ashes. And yet some people it's Looking in the mirror, this is my identity for today. Yeah. Am I having a bad hair day? That's I mean, there right. are people who have been through much, much, much less, including myself, um, and we're still pissed off over it. Yeah. You know, somebody said a bad thing to us. A total stranger flipped us off in traffic, and 10 years later, we're still angry. <laughs> and we're still carrying that around yeah. with us. Yeah, we so. are. We are. And it's eating us alive in the process. And wow. You know, uh, definitely our careers don't define us. You know, uh, it's just what we do. It's not who we are. You, you had said that obviously many surgeries ago that people were afraid. People would see you in the mall. Strangers would they see were. you. And their response, their reaction to you was in horror. Yeah. So many children I saw well, in public course. in Walmart right. would literally say, Mommy, she looks like a monster. Right. And they would clench their parents' legs. Like, they were afraid of me. Hmm. I was afraid of myself at that time. Like, you just looked at me and it looked like I hurt, you know? I looked like a Hollywood horror film. Right. So, the third component is belief. What's interesting about belief is it is the foundation in which we operate from. So, definitely out in the self-help industry... You know, you hear things like, just change your thoughts, change your life, like think positive and everything's going to be a-okay. And it's crap. <laughs> it, it lands nowhere. It's all crap. Well, I know. 
I mean, and, and I used to be that person too. Uh, well, thoughts are important, right? But, they do play a role, mm-hmm. but there it's the foundation in which we operate from that truly, truly matters. So am I operating, you know, you can ask yourself, am I operating from a place of knowing that I'm valuable? Am I operating from the place of knowing that what happened to me is not what defines me? Because that's perspective. That's the lens in which we look through, right? The place in which I'm operating from is that things happen in life. We don't get to control whether those fires of adversity come blazing through our doors. And so the foundation really where I began was gratitude. Those were my lenses, right? I was just so grateful to be alive. And I felt, you know, I had prayed and I asked God to just let me live when I never said, hey, listen, make me rich, make me famous. I never said, you know, give me three other children that are identical twins, triplets, if you will. Sorry. I didn't ask for any of those things. So what I felt was that how dare I ever complain if he gave me exactly what I asked for? How dare? The other part of belief is that for me, I'm a Christian. So I have an entire identity outside of that belief and what I believe about myself, but it's who I believe in. And that's something totally separate. It's your identity in Christ. So that belief is what can sustain you no matter what's happening. Absolutely. And I heard you say that we don't have the choice of what happens to us. You said it's how we respond. That's what we have control over. That's the choice Mm -hmm. that we have, Mm -hmm. how we're going to respond to what happens to us. That's right. How often do you have to remind yourself of any of this? How often do you have to remind yourself of empathize, execute, repeat? um, I am imperfect, but that's okay. How often do you have to remind yourself of all of this? Well, you know, I think that someone who has overcome anything traumatic in their lives, sometimes I think we can start to put too much pressure on ourselves and we feel like we're supposed to have it all together. My husband often reminds me that I don't have it all together (laughs) and that I still have lots of things to learn. And so, yes, I look back and I can get pissed at times. And yes, I have to remind myself about some things. But one thing I never have to remind myself of is to be grateful. Mm. Never. Mm. And not to be kind either. Mm. And that's the gift that you give to yourself. You know, that that gratitude, gratitude, gratitude at, at every turn. Yep. Yeah. You were talking about the the value of names mm-hmm. and what names mean. Mm-hmm. You then go and marry a man whose last name is Prosper. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so there's sort of this funny story that did you did you like put on some online dating thing? I'm looking for a guy whose last name is Prosper. If no, you fit this bill, I didn't. You're, you're I get didn't. the golden ticket. <laughs> I didn't. So yeah, wow. I met David in the Speakers Academy actually. And I remember sharing with him what my favorite verse was, and it's Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says that he has plans not to harm you, but plans to prosper you. And so I share this with him and he's like, oh, I have that verse tattooed on my arm. What? No, you don't. Like, I don't believe you. You need to show me a picture because we were on the phone. You need to show me a picture or something. So not only was his last name Prosper, it was like, you know, God was like, listen, you cannot screw this one up. Like, you have to get it right the second time around. Do you really, David? Where is it? Show me. 
<laughs> David sitting in the wow, so cool. <laughs> so yeah, God wanted me to know. Oh my God, I got goosebumps. This is just oh, you do. They're everywhere. <laughs> God wanted me to know, like this is the king I've assigned mm. and given to you, mm. and so yeah, we're prospering, we're thriving. I hesitate in asking this question, but it's in my mind and heart, so I'm going to ask it anyway. If you could go back and change any of this, change what happened to you that day, would you? No. I would never choose to go through it again because who the hell would? But I would never take it back because what I've gained is far greater than what I ever lost. Right? Like, we're just in this physical life for a certain amount of time. (laughs) We can't just base our value and the value of life on the physicality of it all. So when you almost die, what you gain is the wisdom on how to really live your life. Like, not how to exist, but how to live you know, go skydiving, whatever that looks like for you. Be grateful, but you learn how to live and you you begin to understand that you only have a certain amount of time here. So you can't like waste your time doing things that you don't want to do. You have to live your passion. You have to live your purpose because for God's sake, I mean, you're here for a purpose. Each and every one of us, whether you've almost died or not, you're here for a purpose. So you have to find that purpose and live for that. And whether you almost died or not, you still have a story to tell. Absolutely. And that that little story you might think is a little story is absolutely the thing. It's relevant and it's the thing that people need to hear. Yeah. We're so busy, especially in the social media world, like trying to be so perfect and having this image of the perfect life and I'm so grateful that my husband sometimes will post about how challenging marriage is and things like that. We're not going to Photoshop that. No, we're not. This is the reality of it. This is the reality of it. And so... You know, on the internet, we love the internet, you know, that you you can Google facts. You can't Google wisdom. No, you have to live it. Yeah. You have to live it. Yeah, it's really interesting, um, this life that we have, and it's such a gift, It's such a gift to be able to live. Like we all get the same choice every single day when we wake up. What are you going to do with your life? You easily could have retreated. Easily could have just disappeared and and yet you're out there (laughs) physically showing your body, showing Mm -hmm. physically what you look like, but the courage to just share the story. I mean, somebody uh needs it. Somebody needs it. That's what I know. Do you have a final message for our listeners? As if what you've already shared isn't enough already. (laughs) I mean, I keep seeing the phrase in my brain right now, carpe diem, like seize the day. Mm. Don't waste your time here on earth because all of us have a day where we will be no more here. So give when you can, whether it's love, time, please give love everywhere you can, but give love and be love, right? Like try not to stare 
when you encounter somebody who's different than you. Teach your children that they will meet many different people in the world and that they all equally deserve to be loved. And be gentle with the people in your lives knowing that we've all been through something, each and every one of us. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.